This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we talk about people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm your host, Leslie Chang. One characteristic that separates humans from all other species on Earth is our ability to develop new technology. But many environmentalists have a complicated relationship with tech. The more we live in a world filled with technology, the more alienated we oftentimes feel from the natural world. So, Why, then, do we use the language of nature to describe the digital universe? On today's episode, student reporter Isha Salian examines this question and takes us inside the cloud. The cloud is everywhere. We use it to send and receive information, maintain huge photo libraries, and process big data. We tend to think of the cloud as this amazing, invisible thing. But the cloud is actually made possible by countless servers located all across the world. And those structures require a huge amount of energy to run, cool, and maintain. In fact, information technologies account for 10% of the world's energy use. Fred Turner is the head of Stanford's communication department. And he says the language we use to describe all this technology creates an illusion. The cloud is not a cloud at all. It's a series of servers in wired up together in buildings that generate incredible heat, use incredible amount of electricity. They have a real physical existence. Um, To dream of them as these puffy white things floating in the ether around us um, is, is, is a very deliberate delusion. I think the vocabulary we adopt absolutely shapes our perception of it. But you might ask, what's in a name? A server by any other name would guzzle just as much electricity. As we know, Shakespeare's Juliet was tragically wrong. Names do matter. When I first started studying the internet, which is in the early 1990s, um, the, the language that everyone used was the language of the electronic frontier. 
So we were all going to migrate out to the electronic frontier, leave our homesteads behind. I do find it a little bit ironic that we give names from nature like cloud to things that are sucking power in ways that are increasing the carbon load and increasing our impact on the planet and thereby changing nature. Words have immense power over human perception. Picture a cloud in your mind. It's fluffy, immaterial, everywhere. We connect on the web, spiderweb-like gossamer threads of electricity connecting the globe. If your computer is having trouble, it might have a virus or maybe a bug. These words create images in our mind's eye, and this language of nature pervades our technical vocabulary. But why? Who decided that nature language would describe digital technologies? Percy Bysshe Shelley, an old romantic poet, said that, you know, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Nah, marketers are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Turner says that the way marketers sold the cloud to us ensured that we lost our connection to the physical reality of the technology. While this might sound like a harsh critique of the people promoting cloud technology, Turner doesn't necessarily see it that way. Instead, he views it through the lens of history. He sees a connection between the marketing of computers and ideologies that define 1960s counterculture. Marketers, particularly for Apple, but for other firms as well, Google notably, are leveraging a countercultural understanding of the world and claiming the cultural legitimacy of that movement from the 1960s in order to promote the products that they're selling. And it's, it's not the world that the cloud actually is. The cloud is a myth, a story, an emblem from that time marketed back to us um, in extreme hopefulness, even as the world that it describes is a world of servers intertwined and not at all benevolent and fuzzy. According to Turner, calling the cloud the cloud obscures its physical footprint. And it's not just the cloud. It's the whole way we cross boundaries in cyberspace. Most folks experience the internet in a kind of magical way. I think, I think we have these kind of magical devices. I know that when I'm lying in bed reading my iPad and I can zip from, you know, stories of the northern Arctic to stories of my local California just while I'm lying in bed, I mean, that is marvelous. That is miraculous. That is magical. And I don't pause to think about the different newspapers that I'm reading. I don't pause to think about the different state government lines I'm crossing in my imagination. It's just magic. The way we talk about our digital devices shapes an impression of the world that just doesn't mesh with the physical reality. It draws a curtain over the massive physical computing power our online activities require. So let's pull back the curtain and make the invisible visible. One physical tether we don't always see is the link between our devices and some very specific rare conductive metals. My iPhone says, designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. But there's obviously a lot more to it than that. So when we imagine server farms as clouds, we not only dematerialize the internet sort of theoretically, we hide all this physical work, mining, manufacturing, that goes into building the infrastructure that is computing. There are a lot of environmental dimensions here. But one of the most important is the energy required to run server farms. Eric Mazinet is a professor at Northwestern University, and he studies the energy footprint of our information technology. 
data centers are, you know, a critical component of our overall global economy. Uh, and this is only getting more and more important every year. What those in the research field uh, seem to, to converge upon is that uh, data centers represent about 2% of global electricity use, so uh, a non-trivial component. Masnet uses Life Cycle Assessment, or LCA. This is a way of calculating the total environmental impact of a product or service, from the raw materials to the production to its use, and finally, to disposal. It's natural to focus on energy or greenhouse gas emissions, but there are other impacts that we care about. Air pollution, water contamination, water use, land use, biodiversity. To get a bit more specific, let's zoom in on a server farm. Say we want to conduct a life cycle assessment of a single server. So what we need to consider in the LCA is uh, the mining of the raw materials uh, that go into the server, how they're processed into final components like semiconductor chips, memory chips, printed wiring boards, how they all get assembled into a server, that server's ship shipment uh, from the manufacturing facility to the user, how that user operates the server and all the energy required for those operations, and then ultimately, where does it go at, at its end of life? What's recycled, what's incinerated, and what goes to landfill? Sounds like a huge environmental impact, right? But when researchers like Mazinet conduct LCAs on data centers, they find that, surprisingly, there are some noteworthy environmental wins when we all migrate to the cloud. It's true that if you were to look at one of those data centers, uh, the energy footprint is quite large. Um, these data centers have thousands of servers. Uh, they're running around the clock. They're very highly utilized. So as a facility, cloud data centers use a lot of energy. On the flip side, those cloud data centers provide a, a service, uh, a byte of information, let's call it, or a bit of information, uh, in a much more efficient way than, than, than that server closet down the hall for me. When we're all using huge cloud servers, we're using less power than we would if we were all using personal devices. A good analogy for this is a large city. Cities are especially energy intensive because there's a high concentration of people and businesses. But if you average out the energy use per person, it's actually lower than for people living in rural environments, because we have economies of scale. We have many people living closer together, sharing public transport, living in smaller houses. It's a good analogy for uh, the efficiency of the cloud. Um, we have servers uh, that are powerful servers, and they're, they're operated in a way that allows them to be scalable and to share those computer computing services amongst multiple users. So we have far fewer servers needed to provide the same data services um, from a cloud-based data center than we would to provide those same services from many distributed data centers. And the data processed in those servers can lead to energy savings. In general, anything we can do with a, with a cloud data center, uh, email, file sharing, um, hosting of software, centralized computations, the, the big computations, it's much more efficient to run those out in the cloud. So even though servers have a large environmental footprint, it's actually not as bad as it could be. Still, there is something funny about how we continue to use the language of nature in our technology-rich world. According to Fred Turner, there's a historical reason for that. It goes back to 1960s counterculture, which of course includes the environmental movement. Between 1966 and 1973, something like a million Americans head back to the land um, and build alternative communities. And what's astonishing is that when they do that, they come to believe that we can govern our communities 
by choosing technologies of consciousness, as they were called at the time, technologies like computers, which open our minds to one another's minds, let us live in a kind of self-programming harmony um, in a very egalitarian way. In other words, technology becomes a means to get humankind back to a more natural state, a state of interconnectedness. This cultural undercurrent of the 60s had a profound influence on people like Steve Jobs, who went on to build modern computing technology. But there's an irony here. We use the language of nature to describe a world that is increasingly unnatural, and we don't even really think about it anymore. Given that we're appropriating the ideals of the 60s, are we actually achieving their back-to-nature dream? Or have we just painted a world of illusions where we're increasingly removed from the very real environmental impact of our digital lives? Thank you to Isha Salian for bringing us that story. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 